This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. And welcome back. And some breaking news official. Ontario will start its economic reopening Friday, loosening restrictions on outdoor activities and businesses. Uh, The province in making this announcement says that the health indicators have improved enough to begin lifting some restrictions ahead of schedule. So limited outdoor dining, outdoor fitness classes, outdoor religious service uh, services rather and camping can resume under the first step of this reopening. Outdoor gatherings of up to 10 also permitted. More retail can open for in-person sales with capacity restrictions. Now, this was all supposed to uh, start on Monday, but uh, everything pointing us in the direction that, uh, obviously, if he was listening to the experts, uh, as some of his critics say that he doesn't, if he the experts told him we can do this sooner, well, it appears the, the government has uh, listened and is going to... Uh, to do so. So let's get some reaction now by going to Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist, infectious diseases specialist at the University Health Network. Welcome, doctor. Thank you for having me. So what do you make of it? What's your reaction? I think, I think it's all great news, especially when you hear about things opening up on the, on the outside. Um, anything that's outdoors is a very low risk in terms of transmission. So these kinds of things could have been done probably even weeks ago. And the low-risk nature of these interactions, coupled with the fact that case numbers have dropped dramatically over the last four or five weeks, and the hospitalization numbers have dropped, means that this is a very safe move and makes a lot of sense. Now, Dr. David Williams, the chief medical officer, said we would have to see daily cases in the 500 to 600 range on a regular basis. Obviously, uh, it's been a while since we've seen in the low fives, like last September, it's been that long. But it, it you could see that numbers were trending well under 1,000. And to have some areas, I mean, Toronto, just over 100. Peel, under 100. Uh, 500 for the whole province. It'd be nice if we could have said, breaking news, no new cases, but we're not there yet. So as you say, everything uh, uh, pointing to this could have been done earlier. However, yeah. the Delta variant now, does that, uh, threaten us here if we're not careful. So w- w- when you talk about the variant, there's a, certainly concern that there's increased risk of death associated with the variant compared to the other variants previously here in Canada. The thing is that there's two distinct concepts, concepts to keep in mind. One, is the variant going to be the predominant strain in Ontario? The, the answer is probably yes. It'll likely become the predominant strain fairly soon. But the second question is, when that happens, will the total case numbers be very high or will they be very low? If the case numbers are high, that's obviously a big concern. If they're low, then the fact that the variant has become the dominant strain isn't as relevant. And the reason that the case numbers will be low or hopefully will be low when that occurs will be because we've had vaccinations in for the majority of the population. And I mean two doses. So for certainly getting one dose into the population, we're now up to 50, 60% now across Canada, or I think 60% across Canada, means that the likelihood of cases going up again, having another bump, is now very low. So there is certainly concern with the variant, but as long as we're continuing at a very higher pace right now, as we are in Ontario with vaccinations, then we should be okay and avoid another wave. Explain to us again, in case I have this wrong, you're the expert, uh, as far as after one shot versus after being fully immunized and having a second dose. With the Delta variant, this one that appears to be on the way of becoming the the most dominant one uh, here in Ontario— is it less effective with the, yes. the second dose? Right. So the, the best data we have available to us now is from the UK, where this variant has become more common there and has and in a population that has a high rate of vaccination. So what they found was that compared to the previous strains that were circulating in the UK, similar to here, the vac- single-dose vaccination is less effective against this strain. But double vaccination is all, pretty much the same as effective. And they're talking about all forms of disease, so it's about 30 to 40% less effective 
compared to the previous strains with only one dose. And that's why the rush now to get the double vaccinations going as fast as we can, predominantly to the people who are most vulnerable, like the elderly population, and secondly, to the group of people who have immunocompromised or other health conditions, which may cause them to have more severe disease. But still, I mean, the variant is becoming more prevalent here, and we still have not seen any significant rises. So we, we're definitely going in the right direction. Definitely the, the rate we're going at with our very high daily vaccination rates is very positive information. And, you know, what about, uh, should we be prioritizing uh, with the second doses, the hotspots then with this Delta variant, uh, you know, uh, quickly becoming the, and will likely become the most dominant one? There's been a lot of calls for, for that, prioritizing the, the hotspots. Yeah, I think, I think that approach makes a sense. Again, similar to what was done about two months ago when hotspots were becoming, were, were um, provided more dose with the vaccine. I think really still the priority is the most vulnerable individuals, uh, the elderly population. That, that still is going to be the people who are going to have the most, um, the worst outcomes, hospitalization and death. So those individuals, um, getting those people vaccinated as fast as possible is probably even more, um, the more relevant, more important right now than, than say, a hotspot, which can include a variety of individuals. Uh, that, that to me makes the most sense right now. 80 plus, 70 plus, 60 plus. Exactly. Which, exactly all, all of the above, or where do we, or do we start with the highest number, the, the 80 plus, and, and get that down, and then kind of the way it's been going, just, you know, reduced by ages every five to 10 years, depending on uh, vaccine supply, et cetera. Exactly. So I think the supply, if I'm not mistaken, is already good enough that they're starting to open up even to the group below 80. Last week mm-hmm. it was 80 and above last Monday, and I think they've already opened up as of today. To even a wider, broad group of people, so it may not be as uh, detailed as it was last time with those, you know, going down by a decade. But you may be able to, to do large swaths of people who are in that elderly group um, even faster than we were able to do before. Um, the, the vaccine supply now to Canada is extremely good. There's uh, several million doses coming in every week until August, so there shouldn't be any reason why we can't get this done in the next, you know, two to three weeks. Get the second doses in for all those 16 above people. So prioritize the 80 plus, et cetera, first at this while also, if the supply is there, and as you say, it's increasing in the, the prime minister mentioning just on Friday, how much, uh, how many millions of doses simply from, uh, from Pfizer, which seems to be the, uh, the, the choice of, uh, of, uh, of many when it comes down to deciding which one to get with millions more on the way. It's quite conceivable then not only prioritizing, as you say, the, the most vulnerable, Vulnerable, but also those hot spots, the Peel regions, the parts of Toronto, et cetera, and others. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and and this also goes into the next issue or a similar issue when you know we've been talking a lot of AstraZeneca and what to do with the second dose. But really, right now, the situation is that in order to prevent this strain to become dominant or to cause more cases, the best thing is just to get your second dose with whatever vaccine is available. Similar messaging that has been going on for weeks and months now. So certainly people have the option of getting the AZ as their second dose, but because the Pfizer supply is so good right now, and we know there isn't any specific concerns about using a mixed combination of dosing, um, then you know, it makes sense just to get, get those vaccines that are arriving in high supply to as many people as possible. Considering where we've been not all that long ago, where we are now, say, in the past month or so, and looking down the road, maybe not too far down, but the 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 near future. I mean, we keep hearing all these lines about uh, a one dose summer. Some say no, we can make this a two dose summer. Depends which politician is is saying it. And with so much supply here and coming, I'm putting you on the spot here. When do you think? But speaking today, now, uh, when do you think we could actually break the ribbon at the at the finish line? Yes, it's a great question. I think I think the way we approach this coming down and you know opening things up, it's never going to be like that moment, like the announcing of the end of a war or something like that. It'll be a very slow, gradual opening. You may you know you may not even notice. It'll be seamless as we move through things. Um, that's just because of the way that the risk is comes. You know, we we can't open a lot of things all up at once. It has to be very slow and steady, and watching the numbers very careful opening things up two weeks later, see how things go, that kind of thing. 
But there's no reason that this summer couldn't be as good as last summer or probably better in terms of the way we open up. Um, and the reason we know that is we could look at the, the country with the most vaccination in terms of doubly vaccination, which is Israel, and we see how quickly their case numbers came down and how well they've been able to maintain a lot of things to be very open over the last few months with the two vaccinations. So given how good the supply is over the course of June and July, we should have should see a very, you know, as long as the politicians are okay with you know, the, looking at that data from other countries, that we should have a very good summer in terms of our ability to do a lot of things we weren't able to do last year. I'm sure you get a lot of neighbors and family picking your brain all the time, uh, asking you, Alon, tell us when, when are we get, when are we going to get through this? I mean, just in talking with neighbors myself saying, hi, how are you? A little bit of small talk. And uh, you get the sense that people are, are hoping it depends who you're talking to. Uh, but, uh, some can see by the end of the year that things being maybe not totally the way they were, but a lot better than they were, uh, when this first hit us. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's many, many great cases to look around the world to see this, and especially in America. Another good example where if you look at their sporting events, how open they are now and how, you know, with vaccination rates that, of course, are ahead of us in terms of doubly vaccinated, but we're not that much farther behind from them. There's so many reasons to be optimistic. Um, many states are going down in terms of cases, even as they've opened up. Texas is a great example of that. So, yeah, there are many reasons to be optimistic for the next three months. Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist, infectious diseases expert, University Health Network. Uh, thank you once again for today and all your other visits in keeping us in the loop and your and your thoughts and your views. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bob Komsikin for Libby Zneimer. You are listening to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio AM 740, 96.7 FM downtown, zoomerradio.ca online. And we will continue by talking about beauty in the pandemic. And that's got to do with the beauticians and the hairdressers and everything they're going through and all those people who would love to see their stylists and experts, it's been too long. We're going to hear from an expert on this, a spokesperson for the industry, coming up next on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Welcome back. And with hair salons and other beauty businesses being forced to shut down for much of the pandemic here in this province, many business owners have been confronted with the loss of clientele to the underground economy. And it's an industry dominated by women, whereby about uh, eight in 10 businesses are run by women. Here to talk about the extent of the damage done to the beauty care industry and what its future might look like once the pandemic is behind us. Paula Girotti. And uh, Paula, you are the chair of the Beauty United and Body Art Council of Ontario. Uh, welcome. Thank you, and thanks for having me on and hearing our voices. It's so important. Let's hear your voice reacting to the news from the province. Step one kicking in three days earlier on Friday. Still doesn't affect your industry your side of the of, of businesses, but it that could mean you might open up earlier. Well, of course, um, we're happy to see the cases going down and that the economy is um, reopening. But um, I had a chance to speak with the premier on Friday, and um, I've I've been able to tell him that uh, we need to be in this first phase. Um, we've been promised a date back in April, which was kind of that modified gray, and. Um, and uh, that we, we need to be able to operate safely, um, and we can do that in our own environments. And so uh, without, uh, without his support in funding our plan and um, moving this forward, it's going to continue to drive this underground economy, and, it, and no one wins. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want you telling tales out of school, but mentioning the fact that you say you spoke to him on, on Friday, uh, did I he did, give yeah. you any indication when... Uh, 
the beauty industry could be uh, opening up, which would be obviously in step two, according to their reopening plan, not in step one as you would have liked it. So uh, did he give you any indication or uh, cards being still held uh, tight to the chest? I think what was good was that, one, the fact that he called me personally um, after months of lobbying them, um, so he was able to really listen. Um, we talked to him about all of the ministers in his office that we've met and the plan that we put forward to help us reopen and stay open. Um, and he listened very intently, and um, he did promise that uh, we would circle back today, which uh, uh, which is already in motion. So, no, we didn't talk specifically about a reopen date, but I, I was very firm with him. Our, our industry is very badly hurt, um, and, you know, bankruptcies, loss of homes, loss of business, suicides, um, and, you know, women have been so disproportionately impacted during this pandemic, and just look at our sector with, you know, the amount of women that we do employ. Um, so, no, nothing specific on date, but um, we are laying on the pressure, and you're helping, so thank you. Paula, you're chair of the Beauty United and Body Art Council of Ontario, but you're not just a figurehead. You're also a business owner who's been affected how? Yeah, so I own Sugar Moon, um, and I lost one store actually in Toronto, so I had three. And um, one of my locations, after 11 years of being in business in that location, closed. And a lot of that had to do with the first round, so... When we, you know, when that first closure happened, we were closed for four months and the feds had not come out with programs really to help with rent support. And so this is where they allowed the landlords actually to apply for the rent relief. And it was up to the landlords to do that. And and actually, I, I would like to say, I, I still am not understanding why the landlords and all of this are getting paid at 100%. And we have been closed for 280 days in the GTA. Uh, like, it's just bizarre. So, yes, I have lost a store. I'm sorry, it's a bit emotional even talking about it. And um, and I'm just absolutely frustrated with the fact that uh, with all of our ability to have by appointment and all of the money that all of our industry has put into opening safely with barriers and the thousands of dollars in PPE that we are still closed. And um, it's just, there's an unfairness piece um, here that, that is, it's, it, we've just been treated unfairly the entire time. We can't just reopen. We have to stay open. And when we do reopen, we have to reopen with our services, all of them, because even at reopen, some, most of the people can't open because we have, you know, be, uh, skin bars, so facial services. So the facial bars still will be closed. It's it, it's just very, it's, I'm not sure how they're making these decisions, you know? The, the reopening on Friday does clear the way for possibly stage two then maybe kicking in on, it looks like here, doing the math, it would appear on uh, July the 2nd, because I believe that we were told when the plan was unfolded, and you would mm-hmm. also be able to echo this, that I believe that we would have to stay at least 21 days in mm-hmm. each stage before moving to the next, I guess, to see how the numbers go and et cetera. So it's not a case of being an automatic. So it looks like you could come July 2nd. But as you say, it's not as if you'd be able to offer all the services. Again, it's just partial again. Well, we should have been April 12th. We shouldn't even be July 2nd. We should have been April 12th because we've never been the source of the spread. We've been closed. There's zero point, you know, zero point zero three cases, zero deaths in our sector. So I still fail to understand why we're still closed. So we need the premier to fund our plan for a recovery, and we also need him to open us in phase one. We are not the source of the spread, and it and phase two is still contingent on vaccine. We are still not. We, we the the cases have to go down and the vaccine vaccines have to go up, so we're still just kind of sitting pawns and we're the only sector that's not opening. Look at everywhere else, you know, like fitness. Now you can do it outside. Restaurants you can be on the patio, and 
um, personal care and body art are closed. Yeah, you... it's, it's just unfair. It's grossly unfair, the whole thing. Do you think if your voices are loud enough and that more voices join and speak up as well, do you think that it's possible the pressure could be put on the province? We've seen it in the past where if there is enough of an outcry that uh, the government can kind of adjust on the fly and say, okay, never mind, we're not going to, we're going back on that restriction. We're going to move this around and change this. Is it possible you think you might not have to wait until stage two? Look, you know, the premier called me on Friday. Um, He did say he would have our backs and we're waiting for him to take action. It's a lot of talk right now. I'm confident that when they look at the data around the country and they look at other provinces, that they would be able to successfully make that decision to open us Friday with the rest of the economy. I feel very confident in my colleagues in the industry um, to safely reopen on Friday. And we we need a good news story. Um, and at the same time, we need Premier to fund our plan to help this sector recover We need help for the next three years, minimally. They've done such a good job at convincing the public that we are, you know, not safe by keeping us closed. And, you know, I'm sure you want a haircut. I'm I'm sure that there's several people out there that have diabetes that would love to have their nails done. I'm sure that there's people suffering with acne that want to have their, their skin treated and scalp treatments and all of the... And just the personal connection to your hairdresser or your esthetician, those are valuable relationships and we make people feel good and we deserve to be reopened because we have every confidence that we can keep people safe. And you're so, pretty you're pretty confident this could still happen Friday, do you or you're just hopeful or you think you can put the pressure <laughs> on the government to uh to include you? Well, you're helping. I think uh the media if they can get behind us and we can keep raising our voices. I think um, I think the Premier just needs to give us a shot to show him that we're not the source of the spread. I'm confident that we will have our voices heard, and I'm I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that um, we we see a better result for Friday for us. I think I think um, I'm always going to remain hopeful. Yeah, when you mentioned about how with others already opening up and what else can be already done. I mean, you just look at uh, very quickly here and wrapping up uh, pets being able to to go to a groomer. Right? <laughs> I know I know they're man's best friend. I've got one at home, so I get it. But uh his he's looking a lot better these days than I am. You know? I think people just really want to come in to feel feel good, and I think we can do this in a safe way, um, you know, a one-on-one appointments, and again, you know, we've invested a lot of money in barriers and PPE and keeping people socially distanced. We're experts in contact tracing, um, you know. So many of us have retrained in IPAC, and we have this amazing plan, an Ontario-based IPAC uh, company, Maxill, um, that will help us with quality assurance now and in the future. And, um, you know, we we just need the Premier to uh, take action. And, um, you know, we're grateful for all of his ministers and, and also grateful that he, he gave me a personal call on Friday. Now we just need to see the action happen. And um, I'm feeling quite confident that uh, that he's hearing me. And quite confident that the next call is going to come from you. You're not going to be waiting for him. I just have a funny feeling. Paola Paola Giorotti, uh, Chair, Beauty United and Body Art Council of Ontario, thanks for your time and the best of luck to you and Uh, all your colleagues. Thank you. Thank you on behalf of all of us. We really appreciate you. Have a great day. You too. Bob Bob Komsikin for Libby's Nimer on Fight Back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, fight back with Libby Snymer on Zuber Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. And good afternoon. Libby is off for today. Monday means the Zoomer Squad. Long-term care, usually a hot topic. This Monday, no different, only it's hotter. The topic, the weather, both. 
advocates pushing for more to be done about air conditioning in nursing homes. We'll get to that momentarily. First, a couple of developments for the squad and for you to comment on. We don't mind you pulling up a chair, having a seat, having uh, listened to what we've got to say, but it's better when you're part of the conversation. So 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Jeremy Logan mentioned a couple of these developments in his news. Ontario could possibly move into step one of the reopening on Friday. That'll be, if it happens, three days sooner. The health minister says that the premier is going to be huddling with a cabinet committee on this, review the data, make an initial decision, which the entire cabinet would still have to uh, ratify. This, as Ontario records its lowest number of daily cases since the end of September, 525, 114 in Toronto, 95 in Peel region. Now, 547 are hospitalized, just under 500 in ICUs with 339 on ventilators. All right, joining us, as mentioned, the Zoomer Squad. David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer with CARP. And Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bob. Hi, everyone. Hi, Bob. And Peter. Bob, how are you? I'm doing well. Okay, You're just right. wanted to make sure, like doing the roll call in class, making sure all the boys uh, put their hands up, and, you know, stop with the spitballs for a couple of minutes, and, and let's get serious here then. But seriously, let's uh, go to you then, uh, Bill, and let's talk about what appears to be a, a, a reopening kicking in three days earlier, Friday, as opposed to uh, Monday. Let's get your thoughts on that. Uh, nobody uh, wants their debt uh, back to uh, being able to do some of the things that we were able to do in the past quicker than uh, our older Ontarians. And although there's always a concern that we might move too fast and put us back again, I know there's a very positive feeling about uh, the low number of uh, uh, cases. Uh, I know it's the lowest in September, but Certainly, we haven't been hearing anything that didn't have a thousand uh, in it uh, for even longer. So, so that that's a positive. There, there's there's hope that we can finally see our loved ones and get back to uh, doing the things we were were doing before. So, I think uh, with the, the warm weather brings many things, but it brings a really more positive attitude to uh, our older CARP members across the province. Uh, Peter, you're on deck. Let's go to David. Well, I think that I agree with Bill. It's all good news. I'm not 100% sure that I can, I confess you here, remember what stage one is compared to stage two or three. I'm not sure that, I mean, we've seen so many protocols and stages and steps and phases phases and stages. So I'm a little bit confused, but it's all good. The warm uh, weather is here. Uh, uh, I've already been able to, you know, get outside more. I see more people outside and, uh, you know, already uh, gathering uh, in, in parks and whatnot. So I think we're on the right track. Uh, and Peter? Yeah, well, I, I've been seeing the um, restaurants putting up their patios and, you know, their umbrellas and their uh, yeah, you know, the cities put up the pylons around the street side ones. So there's a feeling in the air that that we're moving into a good zone, and that's positive. And and I I think business owners for business, for restaurant owners and cafe owners, this is long overdue. They they need an injection of money into their they they just can't keep relying on government funds, and um, it'll help get their little uh, economy going and and perhaps get the um you know the bigger economy going and uh, the outgoing chief uh, medical officer dr david williams said uh, i believe recently that he would like to see in the range of 500 to 600 daily cases but on a consistent basis just not a, a blip and the last few days we've been well under uh, a thousand and now we've uh, we're in the fives albeit it's not an on a on a regular basis just yet, but it, it's clearly trending down that way. So uh, no surprise then, uh, based on those numbers and where they've been recently, guys, that uh, we're, we're talking about what appears to be uh, an earlier start to uh, 
uh, as you said, David, step one in trying to remember what's all involved with it. Once that's official, we, you know, we'll we'll be touching on those things throughout the afternoon on the news here. So uh, we'll try to. I, I do know. I do know that's one of the things that our that our cart members have been really pleased about because what we understand is that's. Uh, 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 the outdoor gathering limits are going to be increased. People are going to be able to do things more outdoors. And uh, I think we're all concerned that we're able to stay safe, but we feel like the outdoors is the safe place to be. And maybe we can go to the park uh, with our grandchildren and still be self-distanced and masked, but at least we can go outside and be with them or go down and sit on the sit on the beach and uh, watch the waves roll in with the, the cooler cooler wind. If outdoors uh, makes our older uh, citizens feel safer that they're outdoors, but there's something that they think it's it's high time. And yes, as Peter says, it's going to be good for them and it's going to be better for business. And uh, Bill, nice merge. Appreciate the handoff, because as you know, as of Wednesday, and this is, I think, what you're alluding to, the residents who've been fully immunized can leave their homes for day and overnight trips. Now, let's just give them a refresher on this. This was announced uh, uh, last week toward the end of the week. Residents with mobility limitations or health conditions uh, that make taking part outdoor, highly unlikely or impossible, might have, may have rather, one general visitor at a time inside the home as well as an essential caregiver. Regardless of resident and visitor vaccination status, brief hugs will be able to take place where both resident and visitors are fully immunized. The province is saying close physical contact, including hand-holding, will be allowed. And uh, the the government, uh, in easing these restrictions, the government is crediting the high level of uh, vaccinations in the homes and as well as improvement in the key public health care indicators. The numbers and the vaccinations would uh, be two of those. So what do you guys uh, make of this? I think, uh, Bill, you've pretty much touched on it. So let's uh, let's go around to David. Well, I think that it's I mean, any of the easing of these restrictions is bound to be very, very welcome. Uh, I, so I don't have any, you know, cold water to throw on it. I do return to the fact that the criteria for what is safe and what isn't safe is still muddled and contradictory. If I've got, if I'm a resident and I'm fully vaccinated, what is the magic of uh, having only one visitor compared to two visitors? And, um, what is the magic of being masked on top of vaccinated? One of the reasons, and we've seen this very clearly, uh, maybe more so in the U.S. than here, that you have some resistance to vaccines or vaccine hesitancy is that they persist in, you know, you need to wear a mask and get a vaccine. Well, if I, if I still need to wear a mask after I get the vaccine, what good is the vaccine? So there's mixed, there's still mixed messages on this. There's still inconsistencies on this. And there's still a degree of arbitrariness that just doesn't quite add up in my mind. But uh, that said, I welcome uh, any easing of some of these restrictions. And Peter, I mean, David uh, mentions how there's still some mixed messaging, but uh, would you agree, maybe you don't, that uh, it's just the mixed messaging is not as bad, not as muddy, not as uh, head-turning, head-shaking as it was uh you know, weeks, months ago. Yeah, well, that, that's a pretty low bar to. Uh, <laughs> you can step over. It. You can step over it, right? But I, I find the whole thing quite humorous. You know, they, they're saying hand holding, hugging, and and it's all right there in the uh, in the release in, in the guidelines. It, it's it's rather humorous, you know. But uh, I, I guess it's all to a good end. You know, people can can um, you know see their loved ones and and it, just a much more relaxed setting, and that's good for both parties. And by putting that in, and as you say, humorous, but it's, let's face it, is not a funny situation, but I think the reason it was put in there, because they're fully aware they'd be criticized if they weren't clear, because who knows, maybe on a Monday the Zoomer squad might go, well, what does that mean? So this way, you know, you can, <laughs> well, you, know. You, can uh, you can hug briefly, you can handhold, just, you know, so well, it's like anticipating the criticism, so it's like, well, let's just throw it all in there, and, right. and if we do that, you you know what? It's it's not on us. It's there in black and white. What are you talking about? We told you what you can do. You know. You know, we, Carp uh, Carp did uh, an informal survey some months ago, asking our members what did they miss most 
during uh, during COVID. And the number one answer was hugs. There you not go. Being able to hug people. So, so I think that I'm in this, I know this is very important uh, and not just the seniors. As, as, uh, as you know, I'm quite involved in the theater community too. Theater people are, are huggers and my goodness, it's hard not to be able to do that these days. So there are two things about these, these new announcements that have come out. First of all, relaxing the restrictions of going into long-term care homes still is going to be a problem because it's still up to the individual long-term care homes to interpret how that's going to be enforced, whether or not they have enough staff to allow people in. So I know we're going to find, just like we did before, huge inconsistencies from facility to facility to the way these uh, these are lifted because the facility still has the final authority about who can come in and come out. But now we're letting people go outside the building uh, with their loved ones and their friends where there won't be that kind of uh, uh, restriction. So putting those two things together could mean a much more positive, happier uh, time for our, our older uh, uh, Ontarians who are still living in long-term care homes. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Bob Comsick filling in for Libby Nimer. You are listening to a Fight Back on AM 740, 96.7 FM downtown and zoomerradio.ca if you're following and listening online. But as much as we appreciate the three gentlemen joining us on a Monday, we would dearly love to hear from you as well. Your thoughts on uh, the possibility it's looking more and more like step one of the reopening is going to kick in on Friday, three days uh, earlier. We've got uh, Ontario recording its lowest number of daily infections since the end of uh, September. And on Wednesday, we've just uh, touched on this, that on Wednesday, residents of long-term care homes who've been fully immunized can leave the homes for day and overnight trips. So we'd uh, love to hear from you on any of those. Now, you were talking about going outdoors, but uh, anybody who goes outdoor the past few days would love to go back indoors after a few minutes because they, as much as some people prefer the fresh air compared to the air conditioning, uh, it, nothing fresh about the outdoors the, the past few days. It's uh, It's clearly like a sauna, but then indoors... You might have the luxury there listening at home, being somewhere where there's AC, but we know that is not the situation in terms of the long-term care homes. Now, common areas in all the homes now have air conditioning, though many of the residents' rooms still don't. The air conditioning, as the province announced late last month, is in designated cooling areas. And the government says six in ten homes have it. In the residents' uh, rooms, one in four are making upgrades to become fully air conditioned. So, does a province deserve credit, some at least, or criticism? Bill? Too little, too late. CARP was talking about this five years ago. We talked about this issue uh, about this time last year when I uh, took part in my first of these. Uh, Monday noon hour uh, discussions and still uh, not happening and and the government isn't admitting what the what the pro- uh, the problem is we have had cart members tell us they've tried for instance to put their uh, take air conditioners into their own loved ones roof and install individual ones they can't do that uh, two reasons uh, mainly one is the windows in uh, long-term care facilities, especially the older ones, aren't built to, to hold a portable air conditioner. And uh, secondly, the electrical systems would not support all those air conditioners running in buildings. So so it's a huge job because it means uh, completely uh, reworking the entire uh, cooling uh, uh, system if they don't already have forced air into their rooms which most of them don't, it's going to be even more difficult. So uh, the government promised something that it's going to take a long time to uh, uh, to deliver in, in terms of individual rooms and uh, bad on them for setting up hopes 
for something they should have known they couldn't deliver. David? It's not like summer's a surprise. It's not like <clears throat> there's been a sudden change in our climate and we've never had this need before. I agree with Bill uh, completely. It's, it's um, something that could have been anticipated. It's something that could have been worked on. Heaven knows they have enough bureaucrats over there. They could have had a team working exclusively on this problem for a year now. So um, the question becomes, why wasn't more action taken earlier? And I think uh, Bill nailed it in four words, too little, too late, again. <laughs> I'll add a fifth word, again. Oh, and Peter? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's a good initiative, you know, because um, I, I visited these homes, and uh, it's no fun when it's, <laughs> it's hot outside and you know, the patient or the resident is sweltering and you're sweltering and the, and the staff is sweltering. So it's a good thing, but it sort of underscores the notion that Bill brought up that some of these homes are just too old to retrofit, you know, like these, especially some of the uh, private ones. And um, you, you can you can put in a window unit or you can, you can put in a cooling area, but it doesn't get around the fact that these homes are outdated, a lot of them, and they need uh, replacing and not not retrofitting. So um, perhaps it'll be a uh, an incentive for the government to move on that and and just get rid of these these old places where where which struggle to deal with infection rates and struggle mightily on every issue. It seems four one six three six zero zero seven forty or toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And Bill, David, Peter, and myself would love to hear from you as well. Maybe there's an experience you'd care to share. Maybe you'd like to comment on some of the things that uh, one, two, three, all of us have uh, touched on with regards to these matters. Uh, Please give us a call. Um, You mentioned how uh, I think we've all touched upon this at some point, the three of you have anyway, at some points when this has come up in terms of long-term care and the when we had all the outbreaks and the fact uh, a lot of the outbreaks were occurring in the older homes where, you know, you'd have the, the ward set up with potentially four to a room and it basically was... Uh, you know, uh, percolating, as it were, there. There was, like, nowhere to go. They were just in the rooms, and and it was spreading, as we know, how the numbers were, were just skyrocketing. But as we also know, to replace, eventually, these homes, this is a very long process that, uh, playing devil's advocate here, it's a long process that's going to take time, and I, I'd like to think this is not going to be a case of uh, lip service, Bill. Well, uh, yes and uh, and no. Uh, CARP uh, would really rather that the government, instead of trying to uh, uh, spend this money on new beds that are going to take a long time to to come into into use to get them uh, to get them built and the expenses, where is the money that uh, was promised to to put into home care? and care within people's own community so not everybody who now is going into a long-term care home because they can only get the medical support they need there, where's the plan that was promised to support community-driven health care that allow people to stay home, which most of them want to. We know from our surveys that up to 95% of CARP members want to stay in their own home or, or community as long as they uh, they can. So where's the focus? It sounds good on paper to promise $9 million more million for this and that, but then you look at what they're planning and they're, they're talking years away for actually uh, building uh, these rooms. We know that uh, it costs between $350,000 and $400,000 just to build the physical space uh, for those rooms. Just think what that money could do if it was invested in local support so people didn't need the rooms in the first place. So are you saying, Bill, shift the financial focus there? Then what happens to the nursing home uh, situation? That gets that can gets kicked down the road further. Uh, we, 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 need, we need both, but we need to hear about what can be done sooner is improving home care and care in the, in the community. That can be done. That can be done uh, right, right, right away. Staffing is probably the only uh, uh, 
major issue that they'll they'll have to deal with because these promised beds are lo- a long time into the future and are going to take a, a lot longer to fulfill those uh, those promises. And who knows what uh, some of the governments will do. Remember, it was this government that cut back on a lot of the home care and health care uh, uh, delivery uh, or- originally. In many ways, they're just catching up uh, to where we already were, not putting us ahead. Peter? Yeah, uh, Bill's right. and But the it, it still doesn't get around the fact that we need to do something with these, with, with nursing homes. And... Uh, you know, an at home, an aging in at home program is great, and it would take a lot of the stress off it. But these outdated homes, um, we have to get them offline and and, and replace them with um, modern, you know, well ventilated, air conditioned, um, you know, homes that have don't have the big four to a room. Have you know, you, you can. Uh, you can input like quality uh, infection control programs and 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 things like that, and and, and that's a huge political football that's going to be passed around between the federal and the provinces and the municipalities too. But um, something has to be done, or else um, you know we're go- we're going to get a repeat of uh, last year. Melanie in High Park, thank you for giving us a, a call. You're on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Go ahead. Thank you. Nice to hear your voice and the best to Libby and everybody at the station. Uh, I'm wondering, if it wasn't for COVID, we wouldn't have known that they had no air conditioning. This is not the first year that we've had a heat wave. What's been happening for the last 40 years that we've had heat waves, people who couldn't get out of their bed, sweltering? How many died? Do we have the statistics? Did the inspectors report that, you know what, this is a heat wave? Did they go in during heat waves and say, how many people here are sick? They're already immobilized. They're on medications where they can't overheat. There are, my friend's a nurse, and there are so many medications, she told me, that seniors, when they take them, it's very crucial for them to have a cool, environment, not hot. I mean, why are hospital uh, operating rooms at a cool temperature? Bacteria, viruses, everything. And you know what else? What concerns me is the people who work in seniors' homes. Do you know, I've gone to a few in the past, and do you know the aroma for the workers? No wonder they don't want to stay when it's overheated and boiling and too hot in the winter. Shame on them. I want to know who the inspectors are that have been writing reports for the last 20 years. Okay, Melanie, thank you. I think we kind of get your point. So, uh, David, she's basically echoing and saying it differently in some ways, the exact same way the three of you have been, and that's uh, do something about it. But as we know, um, it's that's going to take time and not trying to make light of the situation. But as far as replacing these homes and, and coming up with a newer, better product. I mean, that's so so far down the road. I think we need binoculars. And even then, I think it's pretty faint when you look through them to see just where those new homes are. I mean, it's... But, uh, but Melanie touches on a very critical point here. And that is, even if I excused, which I don't for a second, uh, years of neglect in the past, the question is, what does the government, what does the Ministry of Long-Term Care owe people living in long-term care Today, because we know statistically the the high percentage of people over the age of 80, 85 with comorbidities, we know the length of time they're going to be in a long-term care home under the best of circumstances is under five years, unfortunately, before they pass. What is what's what? How are they supposed to live in the short term while we're waiting for the province to come up with the with the beds? As Peter correctly points out, it's a long term. So I would argue in favor. I, I realize that you might say, well, it's throwing you know good money after bad to try to retrofit these homes. There's human beings living in these homes right, right now. Okay, and they can't wait ten years for the big, bold, new, wonderful, sleek product to come online, who's helping them right now? Don't we owe them something while they're in these facilities? Where is the plan to improve the facilities we have in the short run? Well, of course, I agree, paying attention to upgrading in the long run. I don't see a plan. Well, Lee in Toronto is joining us. And Lee, you might have uh, a temporary solution. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. I listen every day, and uh, I, I, I'm 
agreeing with the last gentleman, uh, why can't we put up the modular homes that are being put up for people who were homeless, who have uh, had uh, difficulty finding a place, wanting to go into a place? They've done that. It'll not take a, a year to put up. There could be air conditioning. There could be single rooms. There could be washrooms in each individual room. Air conditioning, very important. Very. We've all lived through non-air conditioning in our lives as a senior. And this is my question. Modular homes have been available for many, many, many years. They're not that expensive to put up. They could take down the other home, the other old home, rebuild it, reestablish the people in those areas, temporarily have them in modular homes, and have those other modular homes instead of putting up all of these MZOs. Okay. Also, I don't even want to go into that. Yeah. I'm more concerned about the seniors in the nursing homes. Okay, Lee. And in the ones for profit, by the way, if you don't mind me putting that in. Lee? Thank you very much. Interesting. Let's get uh, a comment as we wrap up here going around the table. So, Peter? Yeah, well, um, they, they put up one of these modular homes that Lee is talking about, and it, it seemed to go up in, in six months, and, and it's in operation already for, for uh, people struggling with homelessness. So um, perhaps she's right. Like, maybe modular homes are a solution. Bill? Bill? I hope that, uh, that uh, more... Um educated uh, minds and mine are looking at this issue. Uh, her basic point is right. There's got to be a better way, and we're paying an awful lot of uh, people in the long-term care business and the government to come up with ideas. Uh, this is one they certainly should be looking at. And David? We have a duty of care to the people who are living in these long-term homes now, today, and I completely agree because Carp's been calling for this for a long time, for a longer-term plan, get more beds, get more home care. But there are people who have no choice. They're living under the care of the Ministry of Long-Term Care today. That care must be brought up to scratch, however they do it. And I, I'd like to see a plan for it, and so far I have not. David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media there, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer, CARP before that, and Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Peter, Bill, David, thank you once again, guys. Thanks, Bob. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks Bob. Bob. Okay, Bob Komsik in for Libby Zneimer. You are listening to Fight Back on a Monday, AM 740, 96.7 FM, downtown Zoomer, uh, zoomerradio.ca, if you care to listen to us Online, We'll continue our conversation with uh, an epidemiologist on what looks like a, an earlier start to the reopening of the economy. We'll talk about the Delta variant as well. Take a look at the latest numbers, all kinds of COVID-related things coming up on Fight Back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.